0: Hello, and welcome to the Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout. Each week we explore classic sci-fi from the atomic age and beyond. I'm your host, Brad Grahowski, the voice of Brad.com. Today we bring you the conclusion of Spaceman on a Spree, written by Mac Reynolds, originally published in Worlds of Tomorrow, June 1963. Narration today is by Brad Grohoski. Let's begin. Spaceman on a spree. Part two. He turned back to his drink and noticed, for the first time, the girl who occupied the stool two down from him. Sai Pond blinked. He blinked and then swallowed. Zoroaster, he breathed. She was done in the latest style from Shanghai, even to the point of having cosmetically duplicated the Mongolian fold at the corner of her eyes. Every pore, but every pore, was in place. She sat with the easy grace of the Orient, so seldom found in the West. His stare couldn't be ignored. She looked at him coldly, turned to the bartender, and murmured, A far-out cooler, please, Frederick, then deliberately added, I thought the kudos room was supposed to be exclusive. There was nothing the bartender could say to that, and he went about building the drink. Sigh cleared his throat. throat. Hey, he said, how about letting this one be on me? Her eyebrows, which had been plucked and penciled to carry out her oriental motif, rose. Really, she said, drawing it out. The bartender said hurriedly, I beg your pardon, sir. The girl, her voice suddenly, subtly changed, said, Why, isn't that a space pin? Sai, disconcerted by the sudden reversal, said, Yeah, sure. Good heavens, you're a spaceman. Sure, he pointed at the lapel pin. You can't wear one unless you've been on at least one moon run. She was obviously both taken aback and impressed. Why, she said, You're Seymour Pond, the pilot. I I tuned in on the banquet they gave you. Sigh, carrying his glass, moved over to the stool next to her. Call me Sigh, he said. Everyone calls me Sigh. She said, I'm Natalie. Natalie Pascov. Uh, Just Natalie. Imagine meeting Seymour Pond, just sitting down next to him at a bar, just like that. Sigh, Sigh said, gratified. Only Zoroaster, he'd never seen anything like this rarefied pulchritude. Maybe on TV, of course, one of the current sex symbols, but never in person. Uh, call me Sai, he said again. I've been called Sai so long, I don't even know who somebody's talking to if they say Seymour. Oh, I cried when they gave you that antique watch, she said, her tone such that it was obvious she hadn't quite adjusted as yet to having met him. Sai Pond was surprised. Cried, he said. Well, why? I was kind of bored with the whole thing. But old Doc Gooblin, I used to work under him in the Space Federation Department. He was hot for it. Academician Gooblin, she said. You just call him Doc? sai was expansive. Why, sure. In the Space Department, we don't have much time for formality. Everybody's just Sy and Doc and Jim, like that. But how come you cried? She looked down into the drink the bartender had placed before her, as though avoiding his face. I... I suppose it was that speech Dr. Gerard Pirageau made. There you stood, so fine and straight in your space pilot uniform, the veteran of six exploration runs to the planets. Well, Sy said modestly, two of my runs were only to the moon. And he said all those things about man's conquest of space and the dream of the stars which man has held so long. And then the fact that you were the last of the space pilots, the last man in the whole world trained to pilot a spacecraft, and here you were, retiring. Sy grunted. (laughs) Yeah, that's all part of Doc's scheme to get me to take on another three runs. They're afraid the whole department will be dropped by the Appropriations Committee on this here Economic Planning Board. Even if they can find some other patsy to train for the job, It'd take maybe a year before you could even send him on a moon hop. So old man Gublin and Gerard Perigot, too. They're both trying to pressure me into more trips. Otherwise, they got a space exploration department with all the expense and all, but nobody to pilot their ships. That's kind of funny in a way. You know what one of those spaceships costs? Funny, she said. Why, I don't think it's funny at all, Sy said. Look, how about another drink? Natalie Pascoff said, oh, I'd love to have a drink with you, Mr. Sigh, Sigh said. He motioned to the bartender with a circular twist of the hand, indicating their need for two more of the same. How come you know so much about it? You don't meet many people who are interested in space anymore. In fact, most people are almost contemptuous-like. think it's kind of a big boondoggle deal to help use up a lot of materials and all and keep the economy going. Natalie said earnestly. Why, I've been a space fan all my life. I read all about it. Have always known the names of all the space pilots and everything about them, ever since I was a child. I suppose you'd say I have the dream that Dr. Gerard Perigot spoke about. Sigh chuckled. A <laughs> real buff, eh? You know, it's kind of funny. I was never much interested in it and I got a darn sight less interested after my first run, and I found out what space Cafard was. She frowned. Oh, well, I don't believe I know much about that. Sitting in the kudos room with the most beautiful girl to whom he had ever talked, Sai could be nonchalant about the subject. old Guglin keeps that angle mostly hushed up and out of the magazine and newspaper articles. Says there's enough adverse publicity about space exploration already. But at this stage of the game, when the whole ship's crammed tight with this automatic scientific apparatus and all, there's precious little room in the conning tower and you're the only man aboard. The doc says later on when ships are bigger and there's a whole flock of people aboard, there won't be any such thing as space-gaffard. But of a sudden, the right side of Pond's mouth began to tick, and he hurriedly took up his drink and knocked it back. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> let's uh, let's talk about some other angle. Look, how about something to eat, Natalie? I'm celebrating my retirement like, you know, out on the town, if you're free. She put the tip of a finger to her lips, looking for a moment like a small girl rather than an ultra-sophisticate. Supposedly, I have an appointment, she said hesitantly. When the mists rolled out in the morning... If it was still morning, it was to the tune of an insistent hotel chime. Sigh rolled over on his back and growled, "Zorro Aster, cut that out! What do you want?" The hotel communicator said softly, "Checking out time, sir, is at two o'clock." Sigh groaned. He couldn't place the last of the evening at all. He didn't remember coming back to the hotel. He couldn't recall where he had separated from, uh, what was her name? Ah, uh, Natalie. He vaguely recalled having some absinthe in some fancy club she had taken him to. One was the gag she made. Absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. And then the club where they had the gambling machines. And the mists had rolled in on him. Mountains of the moon. Oh, but that girl could drink. He simply wasn't that used to the stuff. You don't drink in space school, and you most certainly don't drink when in space. His binges had been few and far between. He said, "Uh, I don't plan on checking out today. Don't bother me. He turned to his pillow. The hotel communicator said quietly, sorry, sir, but your credit balance does not show sufficient to pay your bill for another day. Sai Pan shot up, upright in bed, suddenly cold sober. His eyes darted about the room, as though he was seeing it for the first time. His clothes, he noted, were thrown over a chair haphazardly. He made his way to them, his face empty, and fished about for his credit card, finding it in a side pocket. He wavered to the TV phone and thrust the card against the screen. He demanded, his voice as empty as his expression. Balance check, please. In less than a minute, the robot voice told him. Ten shares of inalienable basic. Current cash credit, $42.30. The screen went dead. He sank back into the chair which held his clothes, paying no attention to them. It couldn't be right. Only yesterday he'd had twelve shares of variable basic, immediately convertible into more than $50,000 had he so wished to convert rather than collect dividends indefinitely. Not only had he the twelve shares of variable basic, but more than $1,000 to his credit. He banged his fist against his mouth. Conceivably, he might have gone through his $1,000. It was possible, though hardly believable. The places he'd gone to with that girl in the Chinese getup were probably the most expensive in Greater Metropolis. But however expensive, he couldn't possibly have spent $50,000. Not possibly. He came to his feet again to head for the TV screen and demand an audit of the past 24 hours from Central Statistics. That'd show it up. Every penny expended. Something was crazy here. Some way that girl had pulled a fast one. She didn't seem the type. But something had happened to his 12 shares of Variable Basic and he wasn't standing for it. It was his security, his defense against slipping back into the ranks of the clotties, the poor demi-buttocked ranks of the average man, the desperately dull life of those who subsisted on the bounty of the ultra-welfare state, and the proceeds of ten shares of inalienable basic. He dialed statistics and placed his card against the screen. His voice was strained now. An audit of all expenditures for the past twenty-four hours. Then he sat and watched. His vacuum tube trip to Manhattan was the first item, $2.50. Next was his hotel suite, $50. Well, he had known it was going to be expensive. A slive of its sour at the kudos room he found went for $3 a throw, and the far-out coolers Natalie drank, $4. Absinthe was worse still, going for $10 a drink. He was impatient. All this didn't account for anything like a thousand dollars, not to speak of fifty thousand. The audit threw an item he didn't understand a one dollar credit, and then immediately afterward, a hundred dollar credit. Sai scowled, and then slowly reached out and flicked the set off, for it had all come back to him. At first, he had won. Won so that the other players had crowded around him, watching. Five thousand. Ten thousand. Natalie had been jubilant. The others cheered him on. He'd bet progressively higher, smaller wages becoming meaningless, and thousands being involved on single bets. A five thousand bet on odd had lost, and then another. The kibitzers had gone silent. When he had attempted to place another five thousand bet, The TV screen robot voice had informed him dispassionately that his current cash credit balance was insufficient to cover that amount. Yes, he could remember now. He had needed no time to decide. He simply snapped. Sell one share of variable basic at current market value. The other 11 shares had taken the route of the first. When it was finally all gone and he looked around... It was to find that Natalie Pascoff was gone as well. Academician Lofting-Gublin, seated in his office, was being pontifical. His old friend, Hans-Gerard Perigot, had enough other things on his mind to let him get away with it, only half following the monologue. I submit, Gublin orated, that there is evolution in society, but it is by fits and starts and by no means a constant thing. Whole civilizations can go dormant, so far as progress is concerned, for a millennia at a time. Gerard Perigou said mildly, Isn't that an exaggeration, lofting? No, by Zoroaster, it is not. Take the Egyptians. Their greatest monuments, such as the pyramids, were constructed in the early dynasties. Khufu, or Cheops, built the largest at Giza, He was the founder of the Fourth Dynasty, about 2900 BC, 25 dynasties later, and nearly 3,000 years. There was no great discernible change in the Egyptian culture. Gerard Perigot egged him on gently. The sole example of your theory I can think of offhand. Not at all, Gublin glared. The Mayans are a more recent proof. Their culture goes back to at least 500 BC. At that time, their glyph writing was already widespread in their cities, eventually to number in the hundreds being built. By the time of Christ, they had reached their peak, and they remained there until the coming of the Spaniards, neither gaining nor losing in terms of evolution of society. His colleague sighed. And your point, Lofting, isn't it blisteringly obvious? The other demanded. We're in danger of reaching a similar static condition here and now. The ultra-welfare state, he snorted indignation. The conformist state, or the status quo state, is more like it. I tell you, Hans, all progress is being dried up. There is no will to delve into the unknown, no burning fever to explore the unexplored. And this time it isn't a matter of a single area, such as Egypt or Yucatan, but our whole world. If man goes into intellectual coma this time, then all the race slows down, not merely a single element of it. He rose suddenly from the desk chair he'd been occupying to pace the room. The race must find a new frontier a new ocean to cross, a new enemy to fight. Gerard Perigot raised his eyebrows. Don't be a cloddy, Hublin snapped. You know what I mean. Not a human enemy, not even an alien intelligence, but something against which we must pit our every wit, our every strength, our strongest determination. Otherwise, we go dull, we wither on the vine. The other at long last chuckled. (laughs) My dear lofting, you wax absolutely lyrical. Gublin suddenly stopped his pacing, returned to his desk, and sank back into his chair. He seemed to add a score of years to his age, and his face sagged. (sighs) I don't know why I take it out on you, Hans. You're as aware of the situation as I. Man's next frontier is space. First the planets, and then a reaching out into the stars. This is our new frontier, our new ocean to cross. His old friend was nodding. He brought his full attention to the discussion at last. And we'll succeed lofting. The last trip Pond made gives us ample evidence that we can actually colonize and exploit the Jupiter satellites. Two more runs, at most three, and we can release our findings in such manner that they'll strike the imaginations of every Tom, Dick, and Harry like nothing since Columbus made his highly exaggerated reports on his new world. Two or three more runs, Goobling grunted bitterly. You've heard the rumors. Appropriations is going to lower the boom on us. Unless we can get Pond back into the harness, we're sunk. Three runs will never be made, I tell you, Hans. But Hans Gerard Perigot was wagging him to silence with a finger. They'll be made. I've taken steps to see friend Seymour Pond comes dragging back to us. But he hates space. The Funker probably won't consent to come within a mile of the new Albuquerque spaceport for the rest of his life, the blistering Cloddy. A desk light flickered green, and Gerard Perigot raised his eyebrows. Exactly at the psychological moment, if I'm not mistaken, Lofting, that is probably our fallen woman. Our what? What? But Dr. Hans Gerard Perigot had come to his feet and personally opened the door. Ah, my dear, he said affably. Natalie Pascoff, done today in Bulgarian peasant garb, and as faultless in appearance as she had been in the kudos room, walked briskly into the office. Assignment carried out, she said crisply. Indeed, Gerard Perichot said approvingly. So soon. Gublin looked from one to the other. What in the blistering name of Zoroaster is going on? His friend said. Academician Gublin, I present operative Natalie of Extraordinary Services Incorporated. Extraordinary services, Goublin blurted. In this case, Natalie said smoothly, even while taking the chair held for her by Dr. Gerard Pirajot, a particularly apt name. It was a dirty trick. But for a good cause, my dear, she shrugged. So I'm often told when sent on these far-out assignments. Gerard Perrault, in spite of her words, was beaming at her. Please report in full, he said, ignoring his colleague's obvious bewilderment. Natalie Pascoff made it brief. I picked up the subject in the kudos room of the Greater Metropolis Hotel, pretending to be a devotee of the space program as an excuse. Had soon developed that he had embarked upon a celebration of his retirement. He was incredibly naive and allowed me to overindulge him in semi-narcotics as well as alcohol, so that his defensive inhibitions were low. I then took him to a gambling spot where, so dull that he hardly knew what he was doing, he lost his expendable capital. Gublin had been staring at her, but now he blurted, But suppose he had won? She shrugged it off. Hardly. The way I was encouraging him to wager, each time he won, I urged him to double up. It was only a matter of time until, she let the sentence dribble away. Gerard Parichot rubbed his hands together briskly. Then in turn, it is but a matter of time until friend Pond comes around again. "Eh, That I wouldn't know, Natalie Pascoff said disinterestedly. My job is done. However, the poor man seems so utterly opposed to returning to your service that I wouldn't be surprised if he remained in his retirement living on his inalienable basic shares, he seems literally terrified to be subjected to space gefard again. But Hans Gerard Perichot wagged a finger negatively at her, not after having enjoyed a better way of life for the past decade. A person is able to exist on the inalienable basic dividends, but it is almost impossible to bring oneself to it once a fuller life has been enjoyed. "'No, Seymour Pond will never go back to the dullness of life "'the way it is lived by nine-tenths of our population.' "'Natalie came to her feet. "'Well, gentlemen, you'll get your bill, a whopping one. "'I hope your need justifies this bit of dirty work. "'Frankly, I'm considering my resignation from extraordinary services, "'although I'm no more anxious to live on my inalienable basic "'than poor Sai Pond is. "'Good day, gentlemen,' she started toward the door. The TV phone on Gublin's desk lit up, and even as Dr. Girod Perigot was saying unctuously to the girl, Believe me, my dear, the task you have performed, though odious, will serve the whole race, the TV phone said. Sir, you asked me to keep track of Pilot Seymour Pond. There's a report on the news. He committed suicide this morning. We hope you've enjoyed Spaceman on a spree, written by Mac Reynolds, narrated by Brad Gerhowski. For more information about Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, visit thevoiceofbrad.com/spaceman. If you are enjoying Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The Gentleman's Spaceman's Atomic Hideout is written, produced, edited, and performed by Brad Grahowski. Let's wrap things up today with an excerpt of our next story, of All Possible Worlds, written by William Tenn, narrated by Brad Grahowski. Like a man handling a strange bomb made on a strange planet, He watched the center gauge until the needle came to rest against the thick etched line that indicated the exactly crucial moment. Then he pulled the brake and stopped the machine dead. All he had to do now was materialize in the right spot, flash out, and pull the red switch toward him. Then his well-paid assignment would be done. Thank you, and journey well among the stars.